0: It's a privilege to be here with you this morning and to fill in for Pastor Bob. Uh, You have an older, grayer, balder, slower pastor this morning. (laughs) And if you're visiting with us today, I urge you to come back next week. You will have a younger, less gray, less bald, faster pastor. So uh, uh, do come back. Uh, Before we begin, let's uh, just bow in a word of prayer and ask God's blessing on our time. Thank you Lord so much for the privilege of uh, filling in today and uh, simply being your instrument God to uh, point us to your word. We pray that your spirit would guide us, give us insight into what you would have us to hear Lord from you today. We pray that Christ might be exalted through what we say and what we do during this time in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, you should know from the outset this morning, if you don't know already, that the pulpit's not my usual place for ministry and service. When I was a younger person, it was, but for the last uh, 22 years or so, I've spent uh, most of my working days walking the halls of a couple of hospitals uh, here in the Dallas area. I think this is one of them, the Medical Center in uh, Mesquite, and the other one it is a psychiatric hospital. It's uh, Green Oaks Hospital, which is right behind Medical City, Dallas, near uh, Forest and Central. I've been uh, haunting the halls at uh, the Mesquite Hospital almost 22 years, and at the Green Oaks Hospital about 20 years. And uh, it's a wonderful place to be. I often tell people that being uh, a chaplain in the hospital is a little bit like being pastor to a parade. Um, It's here they come and there they go every day. You know, here they come and there they go. And you rarely get to establish uh, long-term relationships with people or uh, get to really see much of the fruit of your daily uh, efforts in the hospital. But it's a great place to be because you're at a place and point in time when people are going through some kind of crisis. And many times they're more sensitive to spiritual things or to the things of God. So it's really a great, immense privilege to be there. One of the questions that we are often asked or at least ask ourselves is, what in the world are we doing in the hospital as chaplains? I mean, this is a place where people come for medical help or psychiatric help or what have you, and they're looking to physicians and nurses and psychologists and psychiatrists uh, for the help that they can offer Uh, The short answer to that question, and it's a good question to ask, is that we're simply there to point people to the Lord, uh, to be sensitive to their spiritual needs, which are many. They may not be aware of them at the time, but we're there to be a bridge between them and the Lord in some way. As I was thinking about this, you know, it occurred to me that it's really an important question for all of us to ask from time to time. You know, what in the world are we doing here anyway? And with regard to our daily function, we will all have very different answers to that question. Some of us are computer technicians, or we're homemakers, or we're accountants, or what have you. Uh, And those are our different functions in life, our day-to-day function. Uh, But our main purpose or mission in life, if we belong to the Lord, is really the same, the same as we chaplains in the hospital. It's to be sensitive to the spiritual needs of the people that God has put us with, to in some way be something of a bridge between people and the Lord. Now, the big question that we have is, how do we do that? How do we fulfill that mission that God has given to all of us to simply be a pointer to Christ? And a passage that has uh, my attention has been directed to many times is the one that's before us this morning. It's Romans chapter 15, verses 14, really through the end of the chapter, verse 33. When I told uh, Pastor Bob that I was thinking of preaching on this passage, he said, Well, that's a great passage to preach on. And I was very well aware that uh, what Paul discusses in this passage uh, overlaps in many ways what Bob has been teaching us through the book of Acts. And I don't want to steal any of Bob's thunder uh, this morning. You know, there's a wonderful series he's giving us through Acts. I'm looking forward to the rest of it. But I hope that what we talk about this morning may serve to reinforce in some ways uh, some of the things that Pastor Bob is teaching us through the book of Acts. Now this last half of Romans chapter 15 is the passage we often skim over, or maybe even skip, when we're reading Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, but we're all the poorer for it if we do that, because in this passage he really tells his readers why he wrote to them, and he appeals to them to uh, join him and what was his great passion in life, And that is spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. In this passage, we're going to find at least seven principles of a spirit-led ministry. And I apologize for having so many points this morning. I'm going to try to be as concise as possible. That's twice as many plus one as we're supposed to have uh, in a sermon. Uh, Seven points. I've put them in your notes with some uh, blanks left there so you can fill in and just keep you awake as we uh, go along through the message. (laughs) The first point is really in verse 14, where he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now here Paul is simply describing his readers, the Christians in Rome, and assuring them that his writing about the gospel at such length And in such detail is not meant to imply that they're in some way spiritually deficient or incompetent in ministering to one another and to others. He says that they are. But interestingly, in describing them in this threefold way, he really sets forth for us one of the basic qualifications for ministry, some of the characteristics of somebody that God uses. And I'm going to take them in reverse order from the way that Paul has them here, But he says that they are able to instruct one another. One of the qualifications for ministry is simply being gifted by God to be able to minister to people. And God has gifted each one of us, if we belong to him, to be able to minister to others. He singled out one gift here, the gift of teaching, or instructing, or encouraging. But he could have included many others, such as counseling, or listening, or helping, or leading. You know, God has gifted us all to minister in some way. And that's simply one of the basic characteristics of somebody that God uses. The second, he says, is filled with all knowledge. And, of course, he's talking about knowledge of the Lord. Knowledge of Him, knowledge about Him. Uh, You know, when we come to know the Lord, the Lord sets us on a lifetime of learning. uh, Learning about Him and uh, learning from Him. And uh, we are helped along the way if we realize that the Lord wants us to be lifelong learners about the Lord. I hope that you never stop studying and reading God's word and other sources that can help us in our spiritual life. And then finally, and he puts it first, he says, full of goodness. Um, That's talking about our personal character. When I was in seminary, we emphasized especially developing our gifts and skills in ministry and growing in our knowledge of God and his ways. But I realized when I graduated from seminary that God was launching me on a whole other curriculum, you know, a curriculum of the heart, that he was interested in my personal character. Because you can have all the gifts in the world, you can have all the knowledge in the world, and it'd all be very good. But if we lack personal character. We're not only useless to the Lord, we may actually be dangerous, you know, in trying to do what we're doing for the Lord. So this is the first point, that a spirit-led ministry flows out of our God-given gifts, our knowledge of him, and our personal character. Now, the second principle is in verses 15 and 16. He says, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul is describing himself as a priest, but unlike the Old Testament priests who brought animal sacrifices to the Lord, In Paul's case, he's saying that the sacrifices were really the people themselves whom he was in a sense presenting to God, having proclaimed to them the gospel or the basic Christian message about Jesus Christ, and their having embraced the gospel about Jesus Christ, and their lives being transformed, as he says, by the Holy Spirit. He is actually presenting people acceptable to God, which is something that happens when we place our faith and trust in the Lord. And this is really the second mark of a spirit-led ministry. It's a gospel-focused ministry. Wherever Paul went, uh, he declared the gospel about Jesus Christ. I was in the ICU at our hospital some time ago, and I was visiting with the family members of a patient who was on a respirator, and I was just asking them about her about her life, and they said, well, you know, her main purpose in life was just to help as many people as possible get on God's path in life. And I thought, what a wonderful thing to be able to say to about anyone, that that was their purpose in life, and that was Paul's purpose in life. Uh, because he knew that uh, the turmoil that the world is in is because of our alienation from God, that we've been separated from him by our sins, and that it's through embracing his grace, through placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that our relationship with him can be mended. And that that's the most important thing that anybody can do. You know, in the hospitals I work in, I'm surrounded by all kinds of professionals. And it uh, makes me wonder sometimes, you know, what I'm doing there working among them. But I remind myself from time to time that whereas physicians can... Uh, obviously help people live a healthier life and perhaps even a longer life. Uh, Psychologists and psychiatrists can help people. Some people at least live a more peaceful life. Uh, But only Christ can give somebody a new and eternal life. And that's why we're there. That's why we're there. I recall many years ago uh, a fellow who was in the psych hospital. Every week I do a a worship service for the patients who want to come. We usually have about a dozen or so come. I do them Wednesday evenings now, but we used to do them uh, Sunday afternoon. And I remember this one time a fellow after the service, a young man, probably in his 30s, maybe early 40s, he said he wanted to talk to me. And so we went back to the unit, we went to his room, he told me he wanted to receive Christ as his Savior. Uh, He understood what that was all about. And I'll tell you, I was so amazed, I was almost shocked. He got down on his knees in the middle of of his room there in the psych unit, and he just called out to God to save him, placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ as his Savior. I remember praying with him, and I was so startled, and I wondered what had really happened there. A couple days later, I came back to the unit, and I, I encountered him again. And he said, you know, the funniest thing, he said, since Sunday, uh, he says, I found that some of the things that I used to do just second nature, I don't want to do them anymore. And I said to myself, well, you know, that's the kind of change that only God can really pull off in a person's heart, because it's through the gospel that a person's heart is impacted. That The Holy Spirit comes into our life and affects those kind of changes. Countless millions of people uh, have been transformed through believing in Christ, and even entire cultures have been changed. I don't know if you can see the title of this book, but it's a book I read a number of years ago called The Book That Set My People Free. It's the story of the Hamar people, mostly in northern India. And uh, it tells about how that in centuries past, the Hamar people were, were spirit worshipers, And they were a violent uh, people. Uh, Nobody wanted to venture into their territory. But in the early 1900s, there was a fellow by the name of Watkin Roberts in Great Britain. He was a Welshman, and he read about them. And he felt that the Lord was calling him to, to go to India as a missionary, and he did. And he went to northern India, and he saw that the Gospel of John was translated into the language of a people group just adjacent to the Hamar people. He couldn't really venture in where they were. And uh, they embraced the Gospel. They shared the Gospel of John with one of the chiefs among the Hamar people. And he and some of his friends read, started reading through the Gospel of John. They knew that it had come from Watkin Roberts, and the chief wrote to Watkin Roberts and said he wanted him to come and explain to him you know, what the Gospel of John really meant, what the message was, was all about. Well, Roberts had to get special permission from the British government at that time to go into that territory, and they said, no way, you're not going in there, it's dangerous, uh, the letter's uh, deceptive, uh, they just want your head, and we won't let you go. Well, Roberts ignored their advice, uh, thankfully, and he went anyway, and he spent five days with the chief and some of his close friends. And at the end of their time, uh, they place their faith in Christ. They receive Christ as their savior. And gradually, the message about Christ spread throughout their people. It took a couple of generations for the entire Hamar people, about over 4 million people now, to be evangelized. But even secular authorities acknowledge that over 98% of the Hamar people are Christian, at least in name. And you can know that the quality of life among this group of people has changed dramatically. This is then the second mark of a spirit-led ministry, that it's a gospel-focused ministry. The third one's in Romans 15 and 17 to the first part of verse 19. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me To bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. The Apostle Paul is rejoicing here in what Christ has accomplished through him. And he's really emphasizing the fact that this work of spreading the gospel and seeing people's relationship with God be mended is something that only Christ can accomplish by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God. It's not something that he could pull off. It's not something that anybody can do. It's not something that we maneuver people in or cajole people into, but it's something that Christ does. It's a work of God, but he says here that he does it through us. Paul says what Christ has accomplished through me in bringing the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish people, to obedience. A spirit-led ministry is what Christ accomplishes through us, but by both ordinary and extraordinary means. I don't know if you saw it in the text. I think I'll back up there a little bit. But you notice he says, by word and deed, and by the power of signs and wonders. By word and deed. Those are the ordinary means that God uses, that Christ uses in working through us. Our words, which includes our ordinary conversation, as well as our proclaiming the message about Christ, and then our deeds, our life, our actions. Those are the ordinary means that God uses to accomplish his work through us is our words and our deeds. Now, I'll have to tell you with regard to spreading the word that I have missed more opportunities than I can count to share the gospel uh, with people that I've run across over the years, but there is one instance that stands out in my memory a number of years ago. I'd been in an auto accident uh, here in the city. It was actually on New Year's Eve, I think, and uh, I had to go see the insurance adjuster with State Farm a little while after that, and the young insurance adjuster who talked to me, he was fresh out of university, and for some reason I started talking to him about his spiritual life, asking if he had any spiritual background. And he said, well, kind of, but he told me he was really agnostic. He didn't really know if there was a God or not. And I felt led to go back and to give him, to leave with him, a copy of Josh McDowell's book on More Than a Carpenter, just a little book about Jesus, and I left him my card with my phone number and a little note saying, you know, if you ever want to talk about these things, please give me a call. Well, I didn't hear from him a long time. It was actually several years later I got a call from this young man. And he told me that he'd gone through a personal crisis in his life and he'd picked up that book. He'd just put it on the shelf for a few years you know. after that. But he, during this crisis, he picked up the book and started reading through it. He read through the whole thing. And he placed his faith in the Lord as a result of that. He said he was attending a church nearby where he lived. It reminded me that uh, even the smallest gesture in Giving God's word to people can be used by the Holy Spirit to bring about a change in their life. But he also uses our life, he says, by word and by deed. I uh, read a testimony a while back about uh, a missionary among Muslims in the Middle East several years ago and how God used his life. And this is kind of a dramatic testimony, but I'm going to read it to you anyway, because I thought it was pretty powerful. He said, several years ago, when one of our personnel serving among a restricted Muslim group actually in northern Africa called to share that one of his workers had prayed to receive Christ, I responded with an expression of joy, but then realized he was somewhat distraught. He replied, you don't understand. He's the sixth local person who's made a decision to follow Christ. Each of the other has been killed within a few months. He was struggling with the dilemma of how he could conscientiously lead someone to faith in Christ, knowing it would result in his possible death. He went on to explain that the young man had come to him that morning and said, quoting, I've been working with you for two years, and I've been watching your life and how you live. You are different from anyone else I have ever known in our society, even the religious leaders in our community. I've never known anyone with such integrity and genuine compassion and concern for others. I've come to realize in observing your life that it's because you're a follower of Jesus Christ." And then he went on to say, I want to be like you. Will you tell me how I can be a follower of Jesus? This took place in a country where it's illegal to share Christ with a Muslim and for a Muslim to become a believer. But confident the young man was sincere, the missionary shared with him the claims of Christ and the way of salvation. However, before he led him in a sinner's prayer to confess Jesus as Savior, he said to him, you know, if you do this, you're likely to be killed. The young man replied, I know, but there is no other way, and I must follow it. Now, granted, that's a lot more dramatic than probably anything we're likely to experience, but it does just highlight the fact that God does use our life. You know, we are a silent witness wherever we are, in our neighborhood or our place of work or wherever God has put us, even among our family members, that God does use our life in a powerful way. So Christ works through us both by the ordinary means and also sometimes by extraordinary means. You notice it near the end of the text, by the power of signs and wonders. I know there are some people who feel that if God isn't working miracles, and that's what this is referring to, that God's not working at all. And that's certainly not the case. Um, But it's possible to so overreact to that to feel that God never works in that way. And I believe that he does, especially in areas where the gospel is penetrating people or, or an area that's been in spiritual darkness for a long time. I've had, you know, some... Uh, privileged experiences to go to some unreached parts of the world. And I've seen a little bit, you know, of what the Lord has, has done in this regard, especially in these dark places. I'm going to read you just a, a brief account that a friend of mine, he's a graduate of Dallas Seminary, and he and his wife have been ministering among Muslim and Hindu people in the Netherlands for some time. And I just re- read you a brief testimony. He says a few months ago Lakme's little sister was near death. The pundit, a Hindu priest, and later an imam, a Muslim cleric, were unable to help. A Christian neighbor got on her knees and prayed at her bedside. Her sister's color changed from deathly white to her normal color. She'd been unable to speak, but after a few more minutes she was able to speak again and she recovered completely. The doctors could not explain the change. They'd expected her to die. The mother and her daughters all trusted Christ and are now witnessing to their extended Hindu family. Richard, that's the husband here of the missionary couple, met Lakmi at the market ministry and has been helping her grow in Christ. And we praise the Lord for the conversion of this Hindu family through God's miraculous answer to a Christian sister's witness. Now, granted, that's an extraordinary work. It's not something God does all the time. And I know from my own experience that God's wisdom and his power can be demonstrated just as much by helping us through our afflictions as delivering us from them. But there are times and dark places where God may work in this way. Now, the fourth principle. is in this next section. So that from Jerusalem, this is Paul writing, and all the way around to Illyricum, which in recent times is called Yugoslavia, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never, heard, never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Here's a very simple principle: the spirit le- a spirit-led ministry is an outgoing an outgoing ministry. We know that Paul was very concerned about the churches that he' established. I mean, he wrote letters to them, he visited them. Uh, but we also know that he was particularly concerned about what we call the mission of God, that God had sent the Son and God the Son, Father and God the Son had sent the Holy Spirit into the world, and the Spirit sends the church into the world so that the ministry that God has given us is an outgoing ministry. Some of us are familiar with Dr. James Dennison. Dr. Dennison used to be pastor of Park City's Baptist Church here in Dallas. A number of years ago, he started a ministry called the Dennison Forum. And he writes a daily commentary that goes out to virtually every country in the world. Dr. Dennison grew up in Houston in a home where they never went to church, uh, didn't know anything about Christ. But when he was a teenager, somebody knocked on his door, invited him and his brother to church, and they went. And Dr. Dennison, later to be Dr. Dennison, came to know Christ as his Savior. It was because somebody reached out to him reached out to him with the gospel. If you drive up to Wilmore, Kentucky, and you visit the campus of Asbury Seminary, you'll see this statue. This is a statue of Francis Asbury. Francis Asbury was a Methodist missionary and bishop in the early uh, years of our country. And uh, he rode on horseback. And then later, because of serious health problems, he was confined to uh, a carriage. Uh, He couldn't ride on horseback anymore, but they say that he traveled almost 300,000 miles throughout the West, bringing the gospel to relatively unreached places. He preached maybe 16,500 sermons. Uh, He was unstoppable. Uh, They say that if you just addressed a letter to Bishop Asbury, United States of America, the Postal Service knew where he was, and the letter would get to him. But this is the kind of person that God has used You know, we don't need to buy a horse or get a visa to another country, but we simply need to be willing to reach out, whether it's across the seas or across the street or even across the hall in our own home. You know, every generation that comes into our world and into our families is an unreached generation. And the only way they're going to be reached with the Gospel is if somebody crosses that barrier, whether it be short or long, to demonstrate to them something about the grace of Christ. Now the fifth and sixth principles, and we're going to get to the end here in a minute, or in this next section. This is the reason why I've been hindered from coming to you, that is because he had placed a priority on going to these unreached places. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped in my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings." When therefore I've completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And I know that when I come to you, I'll come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. There are really two brief principles here. I'll just touch on each one. The first is that a spirit-led ministry pursues a God-given plan of action and acts on it. Did you notice in the passage, Paul was constantly moving west, going to unreached areas, and sure, there were detours and setbacks and delays, but he never gave up. He persisted so that when he got to the end of his life, he could say, I have finished the course and finished his work. A Spirit-led ministry pursues a God-given plan of action and acts on it. And then a spirit-led ministry is sensitive to people's ordinary needs. You notice that uh, in this section he referred to the fact that he was bringing an offering to the believers in Palestine, in Jerusalem, an offering from the Gentile believers. As you know, there was some division, some disruption in the relationship between these two parts of the early church in the first century. And especially in Jerusalem, many of the believers were skeptical of Paul's ministry because he didn't ask the Gentile believers to obey all of the Old Testament laws. And so Paul felt that bringing an offering from Gentile Christians to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem in their time of need, just this demonstration of compassion, might serve to bridge the gap uh, between these two branches of the Christian church. And it's just indicative of the fact that uh, the church has always been sensitive to people's ordinary needs. We saw this in Jesus. You know, Peter referred to Jesus as going about doing good. Uh, we saw this in the early church. In the early years, the Christians mainly showed compassion to each other. But as the Christian movement grew and the Roman Empire was, was threatened by a number of disasters, uh, they started reaching out beyond their numbers, beyond their confines. And historians tell us that in the second and third century especially, when... There were great plagues in the Roman Empire. The Christians who reached out uh, to their non-believing neighbors, they made a tremendous impact on the Roman Empire. So, I know I'm getting a little long here, but I'm doing okay, right? Okay. A couple years ago, I had the privilege of being in Delhi, India. And uh, my host there was Sushil Tiagi. He has a ministry of establishing outreach into predominantly Muslim areas. And one of the things he's done is to establish a school. He brought me to this school. It was in a predominantly Muslim community. And uh, even though the faculty were entirely Christian, uh, the Muslim families were very appreciative of the education that these people were providing them, because their children probably would have very little opportunity for education had they not been there. And they had a very powerful witness in this community. I read just this last week of a similar ministry in Africa among Muslim people. And the leader of the ministry had likewise established a school in this community, as well as some other ministries. And after a couple of years, uh, seven Christian churches had been planted in this Muslim area. And the Muslim clerics were so outraged about what was happening that they hauled him into a Muslim court, and they wanted him deported. But the report was that by the end of their session that many of the Muslim clerics, instead of wanting him to be deported, left there with his business card and with with plans to discuss with him exactly how they could help their communities as well. But it just is illustrative of the fact that God does use our sensitivity to and concern for people's ordinary needs. Now, the last... The Spirit-led ministry is dependent on the prayers of God's people. I don't know if you ever heard of Nicholas von Zinzendorf. He was a government official in Saxony, a section of Germany. And when he was 27 years old, he was so concerned about world missions that he established in his community a prayer chain that went... 24 hours a day, seven days a week for world missions. This prayer chain lasted over 100 years. Uh, He was long gone by the time the prayer chain broke up, and that group sent out hundreds of Moravian missionaries throughout the whole world because of the vision of that young man. About 10 years ago, I was in the state of Bihar in northern Africa, and I met this couple, a missionary couple, Jonathan and Fosia Young. Uh, Fosia grew up in a Shiite Muslim family. Uh, Her family were very opposed to Christianity. Uh, But when she was a young lady, she and her two twin brothers uh, became Christians. And though their faith was threatened and criticized, they remained faithful to the Lord. Uh, Today they still serve in the state of Bihar, which is sometimes called the graveyard of Christian missions in northern Africa. But what Fozy told us was very interesting. She said that long before she and her brothers became Christians, there was a missionary with the Africa Inland Mission who met their family and vowed to pray for them every day. And he prayed for them for 18 years before Fozy and her brothers came to know Christ. Many of us know who William Carey was, the first Protestant missionary to India. Uh, But few of us know about William Carey's sister. He had a sister by the name of Polly, who was back in the United Kingdom. When she was 25 years of age, she suffered some kind of spinal degenerative condition that paralyzed her. And for 52 years, she was confined to bed. She could only use her right hand. She could write messages on a little slate and uh, feed herself. That was about it. But she was an immense encouragement to her brother because although she could do little else, she prayed daily for her brother, William Carey, halfway around the world. She didn't, couldn't do much, but she did the most important work there is, and that's to pray. Now, in closing, I just want to give us a few humble success, suggestions because as I thought about these, I thought, well, how should I respond? How should I encourage our response? And I just have four words. The first is reflect. Just reflect on what the Lord means to us personally. I remember a number of years ago, I was concerned about my own life. You know, I was sharing the Lord with people in the hospital as a chaplain. I mean, it's part of my job. You know, But when I got home and on the weekend, I rarely talked to people about Christ. And it concerned me. You know, I wondered if, you know, my faith was... Was more of a hobby, you know, than something that was really genuine. It was more of a job. But I began to think about what Christ meant to me personally, and it rekindled in my heart just a natural desire to want to tell others about what Christ meant to me and about what he could mean to them. Perhaps you might take some time this week just to reflect about what Christ means to you and then to pray. Uh, Perhaps you might get a little notebook and just jot down the names of some people in your world who don't yet know Christ, perhaps starting in your own family, in your neighborhood, people you work with, people who you know need Christ, Uh, perhaps people you the farthest from your thought that they could ever come to know Christ, but begin to pray for them and pray for them every day. And then to care, to ask God to open opportunities to simply share the love of Christ, the compassion of Christ, in small ways, just insignificant ways, can go a long way. And then finally, to share, to reflect, to pray, to care, to share. To ask God to open doors for the word, for the gospel, to give you wisdom as to how to do it. To what to say and when to say it. Let's bow in a word of prayer, shall we? Father, thank you so much just for uh, the opportunity of being here this morning. Um, unusual for me, Lord, to uh, preach on Sunday morning, but it's a privilege uh, to be here in stead. Thank you, God, for what you've meant to each one of us, for giving us your grace, for giving us hope in life and for the life to come. We know in the case of most of us that it was because someone reached out to us beyond some kind of gap uh, to touch our lives with your message. Lord, may you use us in a similar way in the lives of people you bring across our path, perhaps even this week, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.